Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. There's nothing better than feeling comfortable in your own shoes. And that doesn't mean flopping down on the couch with bunny slippers. Maybe you're a parent raising a little rock star. Or a tech nomad working from anywhere and jumping from one thing to the next. Whoever you are, Allbirds wants you to be comfortable in your actual shoes, too. Their wool runners, pipers, and loungers are designed for a level of coziness that makes you feel like you can do anything. You might even forget you're wearing them. And their shoes are so stylish, they go perfectly with a wear-whatever-I-want attitude. Allbirds is all about loving Mother Nature, too, because no one wants to leave a bad footprint. Each shoe is carefully crafted from natural materials that tread lightly on our planet. From ZQ-certified merino wool to a bouncy midsole made from sweet foam, the world's first carbon-negative EVA material made from sugarcane. So get comfortable in your shoes. Get to know the wool runners, pipers, and loungers at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. On January 18th, 1902, in the Indian town of Matara, 90 miles southeast of Delhi, a young couple, Yagti and Chattabuj Bai, celebrate the birth of a baby girl. Ten years later, the child, who they name Lugdi, is given up for marriage to a local shopkeeper named Kedanat Chowbi. After many years of marriage, Lugdi fell pregnant, but was devastated to learn only a week before she was due to give birth that the baby had died. Some years later, by then 23, Lugdi was overjoyed to discover she was pregnant once more. But again, there were complications. Fearing for his wife and unborn child, 
Kedinat rushed them to the much better equipped hospital in the city of Agra, 30 miles away. It was there the next day, on September 25, 1925, that Lugdi gave birth to a healthy baby boy named Nabanit. For Lugdi, however, the pregnancy had taken a hefty toll. She would not live to see the child she had brought into the world, dying nine days later on the morning of October 4th. Five years later, and roughly 600 miles to the south, in the coastal town of Dandy, a gentle-looking man, modestly dressed in a pristine white dhoti and shawl, reaches down into the wet mud at his feet. Lifting a handful of it into the air, he turns to the 50,000-strong crowd of men and women who have waited 26 days for this very moment, and declared, With this, I am shaking the foundations of the British Empire. Next, the man filtered salt granules from the mud and placed them in a pot of boiling seawater. He watched with a smile as the water slowly began to evaporate, liberating the salt from its bonds, until, with the water having all but vanished, the salt was all that remained at the bottom of the pan. The man was Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, perhaps better known as Mahatma Gandhi. With this powerful, peaceful gesture, Gandhi, who had walked for 26 days to get to the coast, had shone a light on a greedy and restrictive salt tax that had been imposed on the people of India by British colonial powers. As with all empires, there comes a time when the ruling powers are no longer able to reconcile the myth of their great nation with the truth of what it takes to sustain it. And so it would prove with Great Britons. With Gandhi's iconic salt march proving an irresistible catalyst, opposition to British rule among both the local Indian population and the British public intensified. Though at the time, the Empire's Viceroy Lord Irwin quipped that Gandhi's salt campaign would be unlikely to keep him up all night. Only 17 years later, the Indian nation achieved independence. After the salt march, Gandhi's position as a leading statesman and as the head of the Indian independence movement had been thoroughly secured. As such, his trust and judgment was often sought on a number of wide-ranging events and incidences, provided they were of sufficient importance. None were quite as strange, perhaps, as that which was presented to him in 1935 regarding a peculiar case of a young girl who claimed to have already died ten years previously. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Born in December 1926, Shanti Devi rarely cried as a baby, despite living in the intense bustle of inner-city Delhi. Having grown into a shy and quiet toddler, it was all the more surprising when the young girl became suddenly agitated one afternoon 
This wasn't her home, she complained to her perplexed mother. My house was much bigger, she said. Shanti's mother, naturally assuming her daughter to be playing a game, did her best to ignore her strange proclamations. It was far harder, however, for her to ignore Shanti's insistence that she wasn't her mother at all. Her real mother lived in the city of Matra, over 90 miles away, as did her husband and sisters. For the next year, Shanti continued to talk about another life, claiming that her name was in fact Lukdi. One evening at the dinner table, after her mother had dished out the food, Shanti screwed up her face and pushed her plate away. It isn't right to eat animals, she said. I won't do it. The now four-year-old Shanti went on to explain that she and her husband only ate sattva food, a group of foods that pertain to the Hindu modes of existence, consisting only of meat-free, energy-enriching foods. Only Shanti's parents weren't Hindus, nor could they fathom how a four-year-old child could have learnt such a thing. A few years later, with Shanti showing no sign of dropping the charade, she explained blankly one morning that she had died giving birth to a child and that she wanted to see her husband again. But when Shanti's mother asked who he was, she would say only that when she knew him, he sold fabrics and that he owned a shop near the Dwarkadish temple in Matra. Though Shanti's parents try to reassure themselves that their daughter's behaviour is only a phase, it is hard not to be concerned. It is said in the Vedic scriptures, the most sacred text of Hinduism, that any child who could remember a past life was destined to die young. Growing increasingly unsettled, Shanti's parents forbade her from talking any more about her past life. But Shanti never lost sight of her dream to return to her long-lost family in Matara. It was sometime in 1935 that Babu Bhushan Chand first heard about Shanti's strange obsession. Chand was a teacher at Shanti's school in the Darya Ganj district of Delhi. Being a relative also, he couldn't help but be intrigued after overhearing the now eight-year-old girl telling yet another friend how she needed to find a way to get to Matara to visit her husband. Determined to see if Shanti was telling the truth, Chand demanded that she tell him the name of her husband. When she refused, Chand offered to take her to Matara himself if she would only give him his name. The young girl hesitated, explaining that it would not be correct to speak his name, but finally relented. She gestured for Chand to bend down and whispered it into his ear. Kedanat Chowby. But that wasn't all. She knew his address as well. Before rushing off to visit the man, Chand suggested they write him a letter first to see if he can help verify her claims. Together they composed it, putting in everything that Shanti had said, that she was once married to a man named Chowby, 
who had owned a fabric shop near the Dua Kadish temple in Matara. She added also that one of their homes was painted yellow and that she believed her name to be Lugdi. After posting the letter, Chand waited for almost two weeks before finally receiving a reply. I did have a wife who died, named Lugdi, it said, and I have a shop very close to the Dua Kadish temple. And my name is Kenadat Chaubi. In Matara, Kedanat had barely slept since first receiving Shanti's letter. Having sent his reply to Chand, he contacted a cousin, Pandit Kanjimal, who lived in Delhi, and asked him to visit Shanti and her parents on his behalf. A few days later, an astounded Pandit sat with the young girl and her parents as she detailed the layout and location of the house that Lugdi used to live in with his cousin also describing perfectly the streets close to it that she had walked many times before. When she asked about the health of her son, a stunned Pandit can only mutter that he is doing well. When Kedanat's cousin bids farewell to Shanti later that evening, it is with the absolute conviction that he had just spoken to Kedanat's deceased wife. The following day, he travelled to his cousin's home to deliver the incredible news. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc, you can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video, Therapy appointments are available seven days a week from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teledoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. It was only a few days later, on November 12th, that Pandit returned to Shanti's home, along with Kedanat and his new wife, as well as 10-year-old Nabanit, the son that Lugti had died after giving birth to. When they arrived, Shanti's mother, who was clearly troubled by the situation, was there to greet them at the door. She explained that Shanti had not yet returned from school, but invited them inside nonetheless to sit and wait for her. When the young girl returned home half an hour later, it had been decided that they would try and catch her out. Having been informed that more people had come to speak to her about her supposed past life, Shanti was led into the living room and introduced to a few of the guests, including Kedanat, who was introduced as an older brother of Lugdi's. But Shanti was confused. No, she said, that is my husband. Walking straight up to him, she bowed her head and stood by his side, 
as was customary for the time. Kedinat could only stare dumbstruck at the strangely confident little girl stood beside him. A moment later, Nabonit was shown into the room. At the sight of the young boy, Shanti's eyes widened and began to well up. She rushed toward him and hugged him tightly. My son, she cried. You are my son. Immediately, Shanti turned to her mother and asked her for all her toys to be brought for the young boy. But she refused as she tried to comprehend what exactly was happening before her. Shanti eventually gathered them up herself and offered them to the boy. Later, Shanti's parents watched their daughter leave the house with the Chowbees, with the creeping sensation that maybe she hadn't been making everything up, after all. That afternoon, having taken a trip round the city with Kedanat's family, it was said that Shanti held on to Nabonit's hand the entire time. That evening, the two families gathered again to talk, but something was ailing the young girl. She couldn't stop staring at the jewellery on the arm of Kedanat's wife. It was as if she recognised it. You promised you would never marry again, she said, turning suddenly to Kedanat. The man's eyes turned to the floor. Sensing the awkward shift in the mood, Shanti's father asked his daughter to talk more about the house she had apparently lived in when she was Lugdi. The young girl's eyes lit up as she recounted the place in great detail, including how she loved to bathe and relax by the well located in the middle of a grand courtyard in the centre of the property. Her apparent recollections drawing tears from Kedanat's eyes at the memories. It was late evening when the Chowby family left the house. Though Shanti was inconsolable, together they promised to make arrangements to meet again. It wasn't long before Shanti's extraordinary story reached the media, and in turn, Mahatma Gandhi. It has been alleged that Gandhi's interest in the story stemmed as much from political motives as it did from personal interest, being as it was an apparent vindication of the Hindu belief system. Nevertheless, his involvement was hugely significant. Having now met Kedanat, Shanti had only grown more determined to visit her apparent former home in Mathura. But every reference to her past life as Lugdi was just one more break in the hearts of Shanti's parents, who feared their daughter might be lost forever if they agreed to let her go. It was Gandhi who finally convinced them to let whatever her destiny might be play out. Such was the furore surrounding the story Gandhi also organised for a committee of journalists and government ministers to accompany the young girl to Matra, to determine for themselves whether her claims were true or not. And so it was that on November 24th, Shanti and her family boarded a train to Matra, escorted by Gandhi's committee, which included among them the respected Member of Parliament, Deshpandu Gupta. That cool morning, As the train trundled through a green and dusty countryside, 
and a warm pink haze settled across the land. A quiet eight-year-old girl gazed absent-mindedly out of the window, dreaming of a former life. Having arrived at Matara Station, as the committee disembark, a crowd of thousands are there to greet them, all desperate to see the miracle child. As Shanti is led from the train, the crowd surges forward, and a middle-aged man steps into her path. Shanti stops. After taking a moment to look up at the man, she bows down and touches his feet. Before the man can say anything, Shanti is already back up. Babu Ram Chowbi, she says. Hello. The man cracks a wide smile and turning back to the crowd, ushers them away to give the child and the committee room to get through. As they push on to the front of the station, one of the committee asks Shanti who the man is, to which she replies, he is my husband's brother. Outside, the girl is led into a tanga, a small horse and cart, where she is joined by Deshbandu Gupta and another committee member, with the others arranging to follow on behind. Much to Gupta's surprise, Shanti, who has never been to Matara before, wastes no time in instructing the driver on where to go, telling him to look out for a yellow house. As they make their way through the streets, Shanti points out all the places she remembers and the ones that have changed since Lugdi's time, all of which the astonished driver confirms to be true. Turning into one street, flanked by a large colourful building, fronted by a series of delicate arches, Shanti points out the Dwarkadish temple, and on the other side of the street, the shop where her husband worked. Reaching a crossroads a short time later, she asks the driver to pull over. But I don't understand, she says, as she steps down from the cart. It's supposed to be yellow. The committee members exchange concerned glances as they follow the young girl across the road toward a decidedly white house. Though the colour is wrong, the large crowd of people gathered outside suggest they have indeed come to the right place. Shanti points out two men standing by the entrance as her brother and the brother of her father-in-law who both greet her warmly before leading her inside. Moving from room to room, Shanti amazes everyone with her apparent recollection of how the house had been set up when Lugdi had lived there. However, one committee member is unconvinced. After all, wasn't the house supposed to be yellow? But it was, explained one of the new residents. It had been painted over after Lugdi had died. That afternoon, as the crowds continue to grow, the eight-year-old girl from Delhi is hoisted onto the shoulders of one of the committee members before effortlessly guiding them all to the next property. It is the last place that Lugdi had lived, and Kedanat's current home. She is especially pleased to find him waiting there for her when she arrives. After being led inside, once again, 
Shanti seems able to recall the layout of the house, but when she moves into the courtyard, something is wrong. The well, says one of the committee members. You said there was a well here that you used to bathe beside, but there is not. Without uttering a word, Kedanat walks into the middle of the square and pulls up a large paving slab, inviting the committee members to have a look underneath. It was the well. The family had paved over it only a few years ago. Later, having moved up to one of the bedrooms on the second floor, Shanti lets out a short gasp. I remember something, she exclaims, turning to the group. Under the floor, I hid a money box full of savings for a special occasion. Just there, she says, pointing to the floor. One of the group pushes at the spot and finds the floorboard to be loose. He pulls it up and, to the amazement of all, reveals a small, rusted tin nestled in the space below it. The tin was empty, however. The girl, disappointed, turns to Kedanat, who can only apologise. He had found it some time after Lugdi had died and spent the money on himself. Satisfied they had seen enough for the day, Shanti made one more request, that they visit the river Yamuna, where, as Lugdi, she had apparently also enjoyed spending lots of her time. After a short ride to the river, Shanti's parents, who had endured so much already, watched with a strange uncertainty as their young daughter gazed out across the water. Suddenly, she was running fast along the bank toward a house in the distance. As the committee members tried desperately to keep up, they were relieved to see Shanti stopping outside another home where a small crowd of people had gathered to meet her. It was Lugdi's parents' house, and there, standing at the front, were Yagti and Chatterbuj Bai, Lugdi's parents themselves. Shanti already had tears in her eyes as she approached the elderly couple. When her parents arrived moments later, Yagti invited them into the house. As the congregation of committee members and Lugdi's family sat and talked, the young girl's parents can only watch with increasing dread as their daughter, now sitting in Yakti's lap, continued to amaze everyone with her supposed recollections of her life as Lugdi. But although Shanti seems elated to be with her old family again, she is equally struck by a deep melancholy. Turning to Lugdi's mother, she asks, Why did you not keep bringing me flowers like you promised? Just like with Kedanat, Yakti can only apologise, holding the girl tighter in her arms as she wipes their tears away. Then comes the moment that Shanti's mother had been most dreading. It was clear that a decision had to be made. Both Lugdi's family and the Chowbis were far more wealthy than Shanti's parents, not to mention of a higher caste. And if it was true that this place really was her home, would it be wrong to deny her the opportunity to live here? 
Yakti suggests the only fair thing to do is to ask Shanti herself what she wants. Shanti's mother reluctantly agrees, taking her daughter by the hand and trying not to cry as she asks her the devastating question. All in the room are silent as they watch the little girl think on her decision. Then, after a moment's pause, she turns to Lugdi's parents, embraces them one after the other, and asks for forgiveness, telling them quietly through her tears that she had another family now. Turning back to her parents, Shanti took them each by the hand and led them out of the house. That evening, Shanti Devi returned to Delhi with her mother and father, escorted by Gandhi's committee members. None were in any doubt that the child they had taken to Mathura was nothing less than the reincarnation of Lugdi Bai, the young mother who had tragically died over a decade ago. In April the following year, a nine-year-old Shanti is taken back to Matara by another group, this time led by prominent journalist Sint Nihal Singh and the psychologist Dr Indra Sen. Again, the girls' claims are put to the test with varying degrees of success. Both men return to Delhi, convinced that her extraordinary claims were true. A few weeks later, Dr Sen arranged for Shanti to undergo a process of hypnotic regression, where she is alleged to have documented Lugdi Bai's journey from death to the moment of her rebirth before later becoming the child Shanti Devi. Soon after this session, Dr. Sen learned something else. Although it was true that Shanti had never been to Matara, not only had Lugdi's husband, Kedanat Chaubi, been to Delhi a number of times, one of the places he visited most frequently was a fabric shop directly opposite Shanti's family home. And he had done so since Shanti was only a baby. Either way, for the rest of her life, Shanti Devi, who had become a highly qualified teacher, never wavered in her belief that she had lived a previous life. She would eventually die at the age of 61 in 1987, having never married out of respect for her apparent former husband. If you enjoy listening to Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are massively appreciated. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at unexplainedpod. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. 
Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C dot com slash unexplained podcast. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.